I was thinking we're going to have a little less kids this, this week, and we do. Uh, and it's fitting that uh, we do because it's good to go through this section of the Song of Solomon because it's probably the hottest section of the book. Uh, so uh, this is going to be a little bit more uh, heady, let's say, a little bit more philosophical, and uh, also uh, a little bit more intimate at the same time. So like I said before, it's like drinking a Guinness uh, versus drinking bush light, okay? Uh, it's a little bit more heavy of a, of a drink uh, this morning. So let's uh, be able to pay attention to God's word this morning. You know, our church is not the only one camping uh, this Sunday. A little west of us in Oregon, uh, the Rainbow Family of Living Light is also camping uh, this weekend. Uh, it's a small group of people, about 30,000, uh, that uh, has been camping all the way since 1972. And uh, their camping trip is full of what they say, peace, free love, recreation, and drug use. Uh, it's really kind of an outflow of uh, the countercultural movement of the late 60s, uh, kind of uh, Woodstock continued on, uh, you know, now almost 50 years later. Hopefully our camping trip looks a little bit different than their camping trip um, this weekend, but I do want to compare the two. Which offers a more appealing community? The rainbow family of living light or the church? Which gives a more appealing community when it comes to love, relationships, and sex. You know, it might be hard for some of you to believe because maybe you have gone through it yourself, but it has been almost 50 years since the counterculture. 50 years. 50 years of the Rainbow Family and Living Light, Woodstock. You might think that culture is come and gone, but truthfully, the sexual revolution that came out of the counterculture is the prevailing ethos of our culture today. You know, Burning Man, Coachella, these show that this culture is still alive and well. It's also kind of hard to believe that it's been 30 years since the evangelists of the sexual revolution have come. David Bowie, the Rolling Stones, Queen, Madonna, Prince. I mean, these were the evangelists of the 80s of the sexual revolution. It's been 30 years since that pop culture has come and gone. But you can see that that is what we've been simmering in in America for almost 30 years. So what are we to do as the church? What are we to say? What is our response? Oh, reverse the clock. We just need to go back to the 50s. Back to the nuclear family. That's the answer. We just need to reverse the clock and go back to that when we were really America. That's one approach. Another is we can get snarky against the culture. Uh, in college, I love to be snarky at the culture. I had a hippie professor in college. And uh, sorry to anyone that were hippies, um, you know. And uh, she was going on about the sexual revolution and, you know, all these things. And 
you know, conveying her worldview. And I rose my hand, and she called on me, and I said, you know, what's it like being part of the status quo now? Is that hard for you? God forgive me for my snarky response to my professor, but that's an approach that we can have to the culture, being snarky. Another is we can just isolate. Maybe you've seen the approach that many uh, evangelicals and churches have taken. Uh, The Benedict option is very popular right now, and that is that we should isolate as the church. We should form our own little communities and remove ourselves from the culture. I think there's a better way. For 30 years, people have lived in this sexual revolution that says the Christian ethic on sex is not right. And I think we are seeing the ramifications of that. People have a desire. They have a longing. Something that is good. But something the sexual revolution cannot answer. And I think the Song of Songs gives a winsome alternative to the sexual revolution. Not in prude language, not in crass language, but in a way to answer the desires of people's heart. A picture of sex that is right and good. I'm going to reiterate three things and make three points this morning. If you write things down or like to think linearly, this is what I'm going to communicate this morning about that winsome alternative that the Song of Songs gives. It appreciates true beauty. It helps us, number two, to truly know and be known. And thirdly, it's a glorious pleasure when it's put in the right context. This winsome song of songs is alternative to the sexual revolution that it appreciates true beauty. It helps us truly to know and be known. And it is a glorious pleasure because it's put in the right context. Well, let's look together, shall we? Song of Songs, chapter 4. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breeze and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister. 
my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, and with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden, and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Herein is wisdom. Whew, okay. Well, again, this passage kind of breaks into three different parts. Uh, sorry, if you're just joining us, we're going through the Song of Songs. This is kind of a, a song, okay? A song that talks about lovers dialoguing back and forth. And we get to view the dialogue they have back and forth. So this is the book. We've gone through a lot of introduction in the book before. I encourage you, you can hear the sermons online of what we've done to introduce it. But let me go here uh, to the three sections. I'm going to dive right in here. So verses 1 through 7. First of all, the bridegroom, the man, is admiring the beauty of his bride. And he's using metaphors going from the top of um, her head down. He's using metaphors that he's familiar with, familiar of a shepherd. And they might not be things that we find very appealing to call someone, But to him, they mean something rich and deep. If you think of a shepherd, he might be on the hills and he is picturing these goats with this long black hair as they're coming down the hills. And you can see that their hair is just flowing as they bounce down the hills. And it reminds him of his lover's hair, her black hair, as he sees these goats. And then also in his mind is, is sheep, and maybe the whitest thing he can think of, something that he's around a lot, is when sheep are shorn and they're bathed, they look so white, and that is like his lover's teeth. A full set of teeth, right? <laughs> Twins, right? Not One is missing, that their teeth are all together. That is valuable to him, too. You see that he is just going down her body, picking metaphors and things that he's familiar with, being able to speak of her beauty. You know, this is kind of talking to us about God's creation. His creation is good. One philosopher said, the strongest evidence to prove God exists is a beautiful woman. And that is what this man is seeing. 
I'm seeing the glory of God and looking at this woman and seeing her beauty. And it's a beauty just for him. This is just a relation between him and her. We could think this might be their honeymoon night. And you see that he is seeing her body like no one else has. She's not exposing herself to everyone, but she's just exposing herself to her lover. You see, beauty is found in commitment. It's found in relationship. I love art. I have beautiful artwork around my home, in my office. Monet, Hopper, O'Keefe. I love art. It's gorgeous. But that artwork does not find the prominence in my home. Instead, it's chalkwork, watercolors, finger paintings of rainbows, of frogs and turtles, owls and trees. See, these are artwork that you might not find appreciation in. That they're not hanging in galleries throughout the world and famous galleries in Appleton or Chicago or wherever it might be. But they're special to me because they're by my daughters. That's what makes them beautiful. Don't get me wrong, Monet and Hopper, they're beautiful, but I don't have a relationship with the artist. See, we can look at any woman or man through society and say, wow, God has done great things with them. They are beautiful. But true beauty, rich beauty, can be found in knowing, touching, committing to one person that we would see things about them that no one else sees, how they are made in all aspects of life. We don't see them as a fantasy or an object. We see them as a person. Have you thought about that? You have been, as a husband or a wife, you have been put into a gallery a gallery that no one else gets to go into. A gallery that an artwork has been painted by God himself. That is what you get to see. That's what you get to be around. You know, what's so interesting about the Song of Songs is that the, the bride, she continues to interrupt the lover as he goes into these long speeches. He tries to go into talking about her beauty, then she stops him continuously through the Song of Songs. But now, there's no interruptions. She lets him just speak. And he says some pretty crazy things. Verse 7, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. What? She have no scars, nothing's out of place, she has the perfect body? No. But to him, she does. To him, she is perfect. Say, how can that be true? I don't get that. How can someone look upon someone and see no flaws? Totally beautiful. I'm perplexed. 
Who does something like that? I encourage you to read Scripture. Do you know that's how God looks at His children? He doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our flaws. He instead sees someone white and beautiful. Because He sees our identity is in Christ. See, love covers a multitude of sins. A multitude of flaws. How we want to be seen like that? By other people. And God has given that to us in his institution of marriage. That we could be seen like that. Someone could see our flaws, our mistakes, our bodies as they age and they still say, you are beautiful and you are lovely. But our society muddles that by giving us objects, giving us images, giving us things. This is what beauty is. Look at this. Now listen, hear hear me. I am not this preacher out here, you know, trying to beat this Christian drum about pornography and things like that. I don't have to. And I've said this before. Society is beating the drum for us as the church. It's not just coming from the right. It comes from the left. We have serious ramifications by seeing beauty in those images rather than committed covenant relationships. Women dealing with eating disorders. Women that are struggling with body image. Men seeing women as objects and treating them as such. This is a problem. Do we have an evangelist message of sex? We sure do as Christians. We can be evangelists to the message that this sex ethic might cure or might relieve some of the problems that our society is seeing. When we see beauty put in the confines of marriage, Well, he goes on in verse 8. After talking about his beauty, the bridegroom invites the bride to be intimate with him. And he talks about the love that she offers him. We see some of this language here. Verse 12, verse 12 a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. This love is exclusive. It is something she has not given to others that he should only have. And we see the intimacy that they share as he calls her, calls her his bride, but more than that, his sister. This is not incestuous. Instead, what it's saying is, you are so close. We are so intimate. You are a great friend, a companion. As we might say in the church, you are a sister in Christ. This is how close we are. This is how I see you. And he compares her body or her person to a vineyard. And this is a vineyard that I don't think any vineyard like this exists. With pomegranate and henna and nard and saffron. 
and cinnamon, all of these things. This is the best garden you could ever imagine. And that is what he sees in her. But I love this passage. Verse 9. You have captivated my heart. Um, I like the NIV better, the interpretation. You have captured my heart. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captured my heart with what? With one glance of your eyes. It's not her body. It's her as a person looking in her eyes. Seeing her. She is another person. Aaron and I, when we look at each other, sometimes we're just, you are another person when we look at each other. You are someone else, and I get to be with you intimately. That is what captures him. That's what captivates him. He's being united to her. See, the Christian sexual ethic says open yourself up, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually to someone else. This is a unity that is more than just physical. This is what we see. I heard this a lot in college. My friends that would talk to me talking about the Christian sexual ethic say, Dan, sex is sex. I say, what do you mean sex is sex? I mean, you take it so seriously. It's just physical. It's It's just sex. See, I think it robs, I think the scripture says, you rob sex of what it's made to be if you don't give yourself fully committed exclusively to someone when you do it. When you say, I will give my body but not myself, it becomes about what you want, not about serving and loving the other person. It's intended not simply for you to get something out of it, but it's for a mutual giving to each other. And when you don't give your full self, you're not able to do that to your lover. Your bride, your husband, your wife. You know, I think the culture desires to be known. People desire to be known. I want to be known by someone. I want to be stripped bare and someone will still love me. Someone will still care for me. Sometimes, you know, history does this. We only look in our context in this time. This is the worst time, the sexual revolution. Look what it's done to us. And look how the culture speaks to the church about how they view sex. Listen, this isn't the first time. It won't be the last time. 16th, 17th century England. I mean, what did the English culture say to the Puritans about what they thought about sex? 
This is the age of Shakespeare, where pornography books were sold on the street, where songs spoke of pornographic love. Even then, there was that. And they said to the Puritans, you're just prudish. You don't really enjoy the pleasures of life. But if you read the Puritans, they say, sex is more than just physical. We see that we put parameters around it. We can see it for the true pleasure that it is. I see Prince as the culmination of the sexual revolution. Prince exuded sex. He just exuded it in himself. Videos, songs, what he would wear. This is a shy boy that lived among promiscuous parents. He desired to be loved. And through the 80s and 90s, he just, whether it was people in his band or whatever it might be, he just lived the sexual revolution. It's interesting as you read his biography and you might, there's some good things on TV about his biography. I don't encourage everyone to look at that stuff. But in the late 90s, he said it was not enough anymore. It had failed. And he actually said, I think I need to get married and commit myself to someone. I think there is a calling and a cry out in our society. A calling to find what true love is. And it's found not just in giving our bodies, but giving ourselves to one another, united to each other, so that we can know and be known. And we can enter into true pleasure and joy. We go on. In verse 16 in chapter 5, verse 1, it's the climax of the whole book, pun intended. This is the very middle of the book. There's 111 lines before, there's 111 lines after. And throughout the book, the bride is saying, do not stir up love. Do not awake, love. But now what does she say? Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. She no longer waits. She awakes love. Might be speaking of wind blowing and the fragrance on her body being wafted up so her lover can smell it. And she gives herself to her lover. And you see, I think verse 16 is her speaking. And also uh, it goes on as she, he, you can see that written there. But then he responds. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. They are no longer their own. They have given each other up to each other. She is his. He is hers. As she said, she, he had, she has captivated him, captured him. Now 
My, my, my is hers. They are one. This is the climax of this book. It's sex. And he speaks in language that Israelites would know of. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. That is the language they used of the promised land. That's what it was like to enter into the promised land. That is the place it was, flowing with milk and honey. It begs the question, is sex the end goal? Is that the purpose? It begs the question for Israel. Another question in other parts of the book, is the promised land the end goal? Is that the purpose? No. This book is in the middle of the Bible. This passage in the middle of the Bible because it speaks of a greater narrative, a greater story. It points to something greater sex does. It's ironic. My friends in college, friends around here, they say sex is sex, but at the same time, sex is more than sex for them. It's a God. It's everything. It's their identity. It's funny, a lot of times Christians like to go, well, yeah, our sexual culture is much like the Greeks and the Romans back then. It's not really. See, the Greeks and the Romans, they were lasciduous. They had lots of sexual culture. But for them, it was an act. For us, it's identity. It has replaced God. The Greeks and the Romans, they still had their gods. We don't have our gods anymore. But we do. Sex. Listen, Christians, we don't get off the hook on this. I've seen the way the church has talked about this. Oh, if you only get married and you save yourself... Or maybe a church, when they talk about Song of Solomon, you should have sex, every, if you're married here, you should have sex every single day for 30 days. They're missing the point. Sex is not the answer. It's not the solution. It is not what saves. It points to a greater reality. It points to the love of God. It points to His care for us. It points to the bridegroom that comes for us the bride sex is not a god it is a blessing and pleasure that points to the creator of all pleasures I was back in Colorado and I was in Boulder with a friend and as we were driving into Boulder, there's this famous tree. And, and if you've been to Colorado, there's not many trees. <laughs> there's this one tree that's in the field. It's, it's called the kissing tree or the engagement tree or the whatever it might be called. Different people call it different things. But it's like engagement photo tree. It's a beautiful tree. People take pictures under it and all those things, get engaged, yeah. But the tree 
is not beautiful because it's just lone tree. There's lots of trees you could take pictures under. But behind this tree is the flat irons in the Rocky Mountains. Just a beautiful picture. You can take this tree and then you see the majesty of the mountains behind it. That's the picture that we see of sex. Society says, oh, isn't this tree beautiful? Let's get our picture taken under it. It's so magnificent. It's just a tree. The reason it has its beauty is because the landscape that is behind it. That God is the creator of it. He is the maker of it. He is grander than all those things. It points to something greater. It's not simply sex. It's the creator of that pleasure that we can grasp and see in that relationship. This is more than just a kissing book, even though we are at the height of the kissing. It's also an evangelistic chorus. An evangelism of this, this beauty. You see, it's not just the lovers that speak. Look here in verse 1. Others, this is people not watching them be intimate, but watching their marriage, watching their love, watching God's design. And they say, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. They are speaking of the beauty of it. They're speaking of the unity. They're speaking of the pleasure that comes through this design that God has given. I, uh, I think we need to be evangelistic about this. We have something to offer our society. I've used this illustration before, but I'll use it again. I remember my first year back in Wisconsin, I was in Milwaukee, and I was at a concert, a Mumford & Sons concert. I love Mumford & Sons. And uh, they're playing, and there's thousands of people there at Summerfest. And, you know, they're playing a great song, and it's during the kind of guitar medley. They, they zoom up on one of the guitars, and on the guitars is a sticker, and it, it says on the sticker, Milwaukee, America's Drunkest City. And everyone laughs, you know, not bashing alcohol. I think we abuse it. It's sad that that's where people find pleasure. I could say the same thing. It could have been a sticker about sex, and it probably would have gotten laughs. But after the guitar solo, they went into the chorus of the song. And you know what the chorus of the song was? This is a non-Christian band. This is all people that, this is not the church. Awake, my soul. Awake, my soul. And everyone starts singing it. Everyone, 
It's like a chorus. It's, I had never been around a louder crowd singing a chorus before. As they sing, Awake my soul. Awake my soul. Awake my soul. You are made to meet your maker. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Oh, our culture wants to be awoken. And they think alcohol can do it. They think sex can do it. And God is saying, I can truly awake your soul. Prince's wife had two miscarriages. It devastated him. They say he was never the same after it. Got divorced. They say he just built walls around his life. He was lonely. People could not speak into his life. He would not allow it. He died alone in an elevator on an overdose of opiates. His first producer was talking about this. His producer isn't a Christian. He has this purple jacket on. He's just, you know, how a producer would look. This is how he was. This is the guy that, you know, kind of found Prince, made Prince. Purple rain, you know. And here is what the producer says. Music could not save him. Now he's speaking to himself. I'm not sure making him famous and having him achieve his dreams is what he needed. If all I had done is introduced him to a nice girl and he ended up working at a factory and had a couple of children and he was never famous, I would have been more proud of that. I would have been more proud of that. What message will we preach? Will we say to our culture, there is more than what you're running after? Maybe to you personally today, there is more than what you are running after. We have a message as a church, a message of a more glorious sex, of a more pleasurable sex, of a more united sex. But more than that, we have a message that sex points to the ultimate bridegroom that has come to us, the bride. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a church that could be evangelistic about sex. That doesn't mean that we go seek after any mate or we date people for evangelism reasons. No, that means we convey in how we live as married couples, how we live as singles under your design, under your creation, that they would see that there is something more beautiful to be bestowed. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.